Good morning. My name is Dan, and we are in Isaiah chapter 56 and 57 this morning. If you have a church Bible, that's page 398. I'll give you a moment to get there. For the last month, I've been publicly considered for the role of elder here at the church. And uh, this was not a, uh, a fast decision. For the past three years or so, I've been attending elder meetings and taking notes and getting lots and lots and lots of feedback. And um, if you were to ask me shortly after I started that process, Dan, what's the hardest part of this? I would have said competency. Because the sheer number of things to keep track of has been staggering. And that's just the normal stuff, not just the surprise things that happen. And uh, beyond that, I've been helping to write policies, and I've been part of little small initiatives, many of which go kind of against what I naturally enjoy doing. But, as this process has continued, I've realized that competency is not my greatest challenge. The greatest challenge I have faced in this process is loving you more than me. I don't know if that surprises you. That might seem a bit elementary. And I think... Many of us can relate to that. We can maybe overcomplicate the issue. Churches as a whole, if you're to leave here and go to any other one this morning, churches so often celebrate and they recruit leaders for their organization or their speaking ability or their their set of beliefs or the way in which they can pronounce doctrine. And these things are good. But the Bible, especially today's text, shows us that the Lord is after something a bit deeper. He wants people who love Him. And He wants leaders who love Him And will teach people to love him. These are the people who will be useful to him. Not most useful. Useful. And Israel and her leaders have not been useful. They have ignored warnings. They have suffered defeat. And finally, they have endured exile for their endless love of things other than the Lord. For their idolatry. And at the time of this portion of Isaiah, they have, they have returned from exile. And though they don't deserve it, the Lord has not only promised their salvation, but He has spent the last number of verses painting this amazing picture of what they're going to look like. 
They're going to be this diverse, multicultural, unified body. Israel is going to be saved and they're going to be reformed. But now that beautiful movie trailer has ended and the lights have come up and they're looking around at who they are. And it's a mess. They don't love each other because they don't really love the Lord. Reform is not simple. But as we're also going to see, it will happen and it needs to start from the top. And uh, that's where we're at today. We see the we see the trickle down who the worship elders, who they worship. That's probably going to be who the people are going to worship. Here's a roadmap for today. Look at your outline. The heart of bad leadership is idolatry. And for everyone, while idolatry promises peace, only the Lord can deliver it. So we're going to start by closing out chapter 56. After this beautiful picture of what they're going to look like, we're going to take a good hard look at where their leadership is. Starting in verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They can't bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. If you ever had a dog like that. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. How do you reform a church with a leader like that? The trouble in verse 9 is, is this. It's open season... On the flock. God's people are being threatened by wild beasts. And though we're talking about dogs, we're not really talking about animals here. This is another way of saying that Israel, fresh from exile, is spiritually unguarded. They are in trouble. Not because of the threat at hand. Not simply because there's temptation all around. And and there are threats all around. But because the spiritual guardians assigned to them are in no condition to work. The leaders. In verse 10, these leaders are blind watchmen. Consider the awkwardness at that performance review. And they're like silent dogs. They can't bark. They only do two things according to the text. In verse 10, they sleep. And in verse 11, they consume. They only take and they give nothing. And in the midst of all this imagery... 
The message is clear. They have one job and they're not doing it. How are they spending their time? Well, we know they're, they're sleeping and eating, but in verse 11, we find the heart of the answer. The heart of the problem. And it's nothing new. They are constantly concerned with their own gain. That's it. Not only today, but that's constantly on the top of their priority list. Look at verse 12. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day. Great beyond measure. Exile has taught these leaders nothing. Being brought back from exile has not taught these leaders anything. God has been saying all along in Isaiah that they have a worship problem and they still do. These are the fathers of post-exile Israel. How bad is it when a church has leaders who worship themselves and not the Lord? Have you ever been to one? College students, you're about to, some of you are about to head out. You might find yourself here and it might surprise you. Here's how this applies to us. Desire watchful leaders. Men who are not preoccupied with their own gain or their celebrity. Men who are faithful to defend the flock against false teaching. I'm going to add something in here. No matter how competent they are, no matter how winsome they are, no matter how fun they are to be around. Because those are fine. But their chief job is not to simply raise your spiritual IQ or entertain you. Their job is to die so you don't. Their job is to keep the wolves out Or stop them from staying in. Now I don't think that's a huge problem here. And I think part of the reason. Especially after three years of meetings. Is that we have multiple elders. And that is one good way to avoid the problem. It's not indestructible. But I do think it helps. But to the elders here. The command from the text is simply, and I encourage you, keep your eyes sharp. Don't get tired of being a watchman. Because it's not simply your eyes that are going to get tired. Your heart's going to get tired of doing it. And it can happen so gradually. Let me try one. You know, Easter went so well. There, we killed it. Right? That's all it takes. Or, man, our vision statements are just great. They're so well done. And our eyes just 
drift from the horizon down to ourselves. And we're dead. So are the people under us. I'd like to ask the rest of you how this applies is to encourage and sharpen the leaders, but especially the elders here. In other words, watch them as they watch for danger. And if you see a problem, say something. And it's hard to say this, but if you don't, we might have two wolves, them and you. What happens if you don't do this? Or the watchmen in this passage are someday leading your church? Well, as we're going to see from the text, it will be bad. In fact, as we keep reading, God might look totally absent and reform might seem impossible, but God's going to win. Peace will come only to his worshipers and never to the idolaters, no matter how it looks. Let's compare the two parties in the uh, next section. Point two, idolatry promises peace for everyone, but only the Lord delivers. There's a lot of stuff to cover here, but I'm going to start with just the first two verses. So we just covered the steeple, and now we're kind of down on the street under the leaders. Verses one and two. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. And just as a quick reminder, this is not you as a Christian in like secular culture. This is you in the church. This is to God's people. Now you have to squint a little bit in these first two verses to see hope, but it is here. Look at the situation. The righteous person perishes. So we've got these bad leaders, but there's a person who's faithful. They've survived exile. They're holding fast. And they perish, but no one lays it to heart. It doesn't really matter. We just mourned a woman of the Lord passing away. It's like, instead of that, nobody cares. Who was she again? That's what we're talking about here. And devout men are taken away. Taken away while nobody gets it. This would be like if a church member spoke up about abuse and the elders just kind of downplayed it. You read this text. You know they're going to do that in this situation. And then it gets worse. The church actually turns away. So not only does nobody blow the whistle, you're not supposed to. There might not even be a whistle. That's what's going on here. And this looks like bad news for righteous people. And I don't want to minimize the reform that needs to happen in this situation. But cosmically, according to this text, verses 1 and 2, the righteous people aren't actually losing. Look at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. The righteous person is taken away from calamity and enters into peace. It's like they've been cast out of hell and into heaven. And nobody gets it but the victim. It's actually good news. If you've escaped 
from a corrupt church, this is you. Or if you've been a corrupt leader in the past, this is what you've caused. Or even more so, if a whistleblower gets killed, they go to be with the Lord. That's a good trade. So what do the perpetrators get? Let's read verses 3 through 13, and I'll, I'll end at the first half of verse 13. Now watch the imagery. This is going to be a lot of text here. But we're now comparing the righteous people in this system to the unrighteous people who are just getting carried along. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. You've made it wide and you've made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even a shield or the grave. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread or fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you don't fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. I'm going to move through this section a bit quickly, not because it isn't important, but because much of this post-exile imagery of what Israel looks like, it's simply a recycled picture of pre-exile Israel. They haven't changed. Like the, the, the corrupt leaders, it's like their hearts haven't changed either as a, um, even after the Lord has brought them back. And so the people have followed suit and maybe it's actually gotten a little worse. Look at verse 3. Adultery and sorcery are the words used to describe these people. Now this is connected to the worship of, of false gods like Baal who demanded ritualistic sexual practices and demanded child sacrifice. This is the, the slaughtering of children mentioned in verse 5. And all that was happening because what the people wanted was peace and prosperity. So they were willing to do whatever they thought it would take to get that. This place needs a lot of reform and they're not getting it from the top. Verses 7 and 9 show us the length of this depravity. 
by likening their work and their sacrifices day in and day out to setting up a bed. In other words, they keep giving themselves over to whatever in a desperate attempt to be satisfied. In fact, verse 7 calls the bed set up high so everybody can see. And verse 8 calls the bed uncovered and wide. How wide? In verse 9, they're taking it international. Whoever can give me what I need. I'll give up my children, my heart to it. A program's not going to fix this. A fancy sermon series isn't going to fix this. But thankfully, we also don't have to light a match. Because the problem is not the building. It's the hearts of the people in it. Look at verse 10 to see the depth of the corruption in their hearts. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. So all this happens. You get up in the morning. You sacrifice a child. And at the end of the day, you feel just stretched. Maybe you feel a little bit convicted, but you dig down deep and you say, I'm just going to try it once more. And that's your life. You just keep digging down deep. Friends, a brief word here. This is actually a strange encouragement to us. No matter how much it looks like the solid churches are losing and the the corrupt churches are winning, do these people here look like they're winning? Do these people look like they're going to find the peace and the prosperity they want, or they're going to give it to their children? No! So it might look like you're losing for holding on, but you are not. Because as we've seen all throughout Isaiah, and in the language here, these people are prostitutes at the heart level. And so it's like the harder they work, the worse it gets. So a reminder, you can write down Romans 1, if that's new to you. Because that's Romans 1. That's the worst it gets. God just turns you over and it just downward spiral. Look at verse 12. Look at the payoff. You could almost put air quotes around the words righteousness and deeds. These people are trying their best. And maybe actually the gospel is being preached on occasion. Like a broken clock being right twice a day. God's still going to get the message out. But they're going to have no boast in that. And uh, the priests are wearing robes. And the people might observe the customs. These churches might be very attractional. They might think they're winning. And in Jerusalem, the walls might be rebuilt. But the inside is the problem. 
The Lord is simply showing them here the futility of idolatry. And all this shows us a very interesting contrast. While the actual righteous people are getting the end goal of peace, literally as they're being rejected by Israel, Israel is caught in a spiral and it keeps going down. That's a strange contrast. The perpetual loss here shows us a theme not only found throughout Isaiah, but the whole Bible. God is concerned with the hearts of his people, and when they worship anything other than him, it's futile. For Israel, going back to Jerusalem has not solved the problem. Banding together has not solved the problem. Getting leaders has not solved the problem. Their hearts are still the problem. And reform can't happen until that's fixed. What's the solution? Let me read just a few more verses. 13b into 14. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it should be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction for my people's way. The solution is to take refuge in the Lord. And the payoff for that is the possession of land that has no wild beasts and the inheritance of a mountain where God himself is the leader. Does that sound like a good place to live? Good, because according to verse 14, there's a clear path to it. And from context, we know the clear path is through being rejected by a corrupt world. And from the quoting of this text in the New Testament, John the Baptist, we know the clear path is Jesus. But let's pause, because why should anybody get this happy ending? Let's read the rest of the verses. So we're tempted to not be proud. Starting in verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint within me, before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on to backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his waves, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to the far end of the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it can't be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So it's simple. The happy ending, the reason why this is possible, is through the holiness of the Lord. How do we get that? Look at verse 15. The Lord is high up. 
And he's stooping down and caring for people who are contrite and lowly. And none of these people deserve that. I mean, Israel was punished corporately. But the Lord promises to relent. In verse 6, he stops, but not because they're paid up. He stops because if he didn't, they would grow faint. They couldn't take it. He would give reform to, to people like, like the ones in verse 17 who have been consumed with unjust gain. People who backslide. He sees all in verse 18. They might look righteous, but he knows the heart. And he's merciful. And in verse 18, to these people, to this corrupt church, he says, I will heal you. And the best part is in verse 19, creating fruit of the lips, he will bring peace to the far and near. So he's going to take it international, but for good reason. And again, the Lord will not only bring salvation to his people, as we've read throughout Isaiah, the removal of their sins, he will bring reform. So one day, he's going to make leaders who would actually watch and protect the flock. He will grow communities of people who will one day not sacrifice their lives and the lives of their children for worldly treasure that will not satisfy. But he will grow communities of people who will raise up children instead to go into the world forsaking worldly gain to bring good news. He's going to do the opposite of their plan. And he's going to do that even if they're rejected. That's how peace comes. And I hope you see Jesus in this. Who received the the punishment that caused the Lord to relent. In order to bring salvation, but to bring in reform. Which is why when he came to earth, he's preaching peace, but he's also laying into the Pharisees. That's why he does both. It's a both end. And uh, consider Jesus the, the elder of elders, perhaps we could call him, of which the book of Philippians says this, as the command for the church to love one another is, is given. From the book of Philippians, have this mind among yourselves. Imagine a leader hearing this for the first time. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a a cross. That's how an elder reforms. That's how our church gets back on track. You don't launch a new program. You don't read another book on leadership. Those things can help. But the way you reform is you just look like Jesus. You receive his love and you start to bend it outwards to other people. That's the clear path to peace. 
Because for Israel and for us, in the meantime, life in an idolatrous culture can seem absolutely miserable. Because we're not there yet. we still got corrupt churches. But the Lord's going to bring peace to his worshipers and nobody else. That's why in verses 20 and 21, we land with a warning. There is no peace for the wicked. There's no salvation, no reform, no peace for the church by any other means than Christ. That's the way. And to all of you here, leader, member, or visitor, that's either a reminder or it's a plead. And if you worship the Lord, let this text give you comfort as you pursue reform and await full restoration. Even if you're in the midst of a corrupt church, you can endure. I'll end with one brief application. In a world of futility, place your hope in the covenant promise. So if you're new here and you've been to to crooked church after crooked church after crooked church and you're tempted to just move out in the woods and grow a beard, Don't keep blindly digging like Israel. Or if you've been through religion, after religion, after religion, don't keep digging. You found it. It's right here. Look to the Lord in His holiness and mercy. Consider the promise of Jesus here and take refuge there. Just like the watchman, don't get tired of that. This is how elders endure. This is how communities of churches actually heal. It does happen. This is how they keep out the wolves. And this is even how they eventually become the promised people of chapter 56. And it's even how people caught in corrupt churches can escape and actually find peace. Friends, let us not find peace in idolatry. Let us not enjoy the company of wolves. And let us find total peace in the Lord. Let me pray. Dear God, even right now, there are churches full of idolatrous people and idolatrous leaders singing their hearts out. And those hearts are dead. It's happening right now. And to those people, the Lord says, to these people who are starving themselves, looking for satisfaction and not getting, the Lord is saying this morning, feast on me, I am the bread of life. Lord, would you help us to feast on you? Amen.